and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. When I'm not recording this podcast, I work as a mental performance coach, where I get to work with executives and athletes and teams and organizations on the mental side of performance. I love what I do for a living, and as a result, I fired up this podcast to try to find out from others and learn from them about how they intentionally set their mind to be their best. And before we get to today's guest, who is an awesome guest, and I'm really excited to share him with you, I want to tell you about how you might be able to help us out at the podcast. So if you go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers, once again, that's patreon.com slash intentional performers, you'll see how you can subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. And it really does help us as we continue continue to try to build this thing. We're now on season three and we're grateful to have you here and listening. So thanks for listening. And if you could go over to Patreon, it, it really would help us out. But now to today's guest. So growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, you pretty much, at least when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, had to be a Washington Redskins fan. Uh, This area loves football and certainly loves their Washington Redskins, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today in the episode. Uh, But one of the people that I grew up watching was Brian Mitchell. So Brian was a longtime Washington Redskin. He started his career as a fifth-round draft pick in 1990, and then he went on to become a kickoff and punt specialist. And When we have these conversations, we really do try to find people that are at the tip of the arrow or that are experts at their craft. And Brian is certainly that when it comes to kickoff returns and punt returns in the National Football League. And I know that because he is the all-time leader in both kickoff and punt return yards. And he's second in NFL history with 13 total special teams touchdowns. So Brian is somebody who has done it as well as anybody, and there's certainly an argument to be made that he's the greatest of all time when it comes to kickoff and punt returns. He's also in the Washington Redskins Ring of Fame, and he was just recently nominated for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And if you're listening to these stats uh, and you listen to Brian's history and his background and his career, he certainly is a worthy option for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And and I hope, as many people in Washington, D.C., hope that he will become a Hall of Famer sooner rather than later. He's a three-time first-team All-Pro, 
and he is only second to Jerry Rice, second to Jerry Rice, who's considered by many to be the greatest of all time in total yards. So Brian had an illustrious career, and today he works on TV and then radio. So in the Washington, D.C. area, he has a big presence in the sports world. And Brian is somebody who does not mince words. He doesn't sugarcoat things. And I'm excited to share his journey and to share his mindset with you. And I know you're going to love this conversation. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you Brian Mitchell. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excited to have you. I grew up in the area, so uh, I don't need to say my age, and you don't need to say your age, but uh, I definitely- I don't have a problem saying mine. You can I'm say I'm 50 age. years old. I'm cool with it. And I turned 35, so oh, you're cool. about 15 years older than me, which yes. means that I got to grow up watching you play, which was, uh, for me, a pleasure. And as somebody who maybe I had a little bit of a Napoleon complex growing up and was small, mm-hmm. uh, watching you play on the field with a chip on your shoulder and compete- uh, was something that resonated with me. And oh, cool. football wasn't my sport, but uh, I like to have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder when I played my sport. So <laughs> cool. so thank you for that. Uh, where I'd love to start with you is to get an idea of what childhood was like for you uh, growing up mm. and what that household was like and mom and dad and all that good stuff. Well, I grew up, uh, I'm the youngest of seven kids. Um, you know, I lived on the street. It was one way in, one way out. Uh, my whole neighborhood was all relatives. Uh, my grandmother basically owned all the property. And uh, everybody that um, lived there, was we were all related. And I think starting from three, four, five years old, if I was playing sports, it was normally with people that were a little older than me. And uh, I kind of gained a lot of confidence in that uh, time growing up. But um, I think a, a thing that really stuck with me and, and began to make me have the, uh, the way that I think is when I was in the fifth grade and uh, – you ever been in the country where they have these big posts and they drill, they drive the posts down into the ground? And I'm like, Daddy, I can't do it. I'm too young. I'm. He said, Boy, you're Mitchell. You can do anything. So I was in the fifth grade at the time, and ever since then, that's what my life has always been about. I've never felt I couldn't do anything. And, can you uh, can you go to that moment? Like, yeah. can you see yourself in that moment? Like putting the post in and yeah. see your dad. So that's a big watershed moment for you. It, for me, it is because uh, you know I think back and people sometimes will ask questions like. Why do I think the way I do? And that, I always go back to that moment because uh, at that point I felt just him telling me, you're a Mitchell, you can do anything. You know, people talk about having pride in your family, having pride in your last name. Hearing my dad say, because people always say, who was my hero? My hero is my father. You know, uh, I love Walter Payton. I love Tony Dorsett. But my hero was my dad because he was the guy I looked up to. Uh, he was, what, 5'8", about 185 pounds, had the biggest forearms you could ever see in your life. But he did everything. You know, he was a chef. He uh, he can take a car apart. He can go out there and start a garden. We raised animals. He did everything and didn't ask for enough much. And then he taught us. You know, me and my four brothers and my sisters, like, I was like, Dad, won't you get, you know, I go to my friend's house. They have a, 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 a dishwasher. He said, I have seven. I'm like, what do you mean? We don't have a dishwasher. He said, got you, your brothers, and your sisters. So uh, we were always taught to handle things ourselves, and I developed that mindset. Where were you in the pecking order with the kids? I'm the youngest of seven. Youngest of yeah, seven. Yeah, I'm the baby. And which of the uh, older siblings had an impact on you? Um, to be honest with you, my brother, Daryl, who's next to me, he's five and a half years older than me. Um, you know, everybody had some phase of it, but, you know, as a young kid, um, for me, I watched how my mom and dad talked about you know, how they reacted and responded when my brothers and sisters did things. And 
Uh, my sisters were, they were always good. <laughs> and then I found that Daryl got more of the praise from them. And they and so I just started following him. Uh, he he was a football player, very uh, smart in school. He's now an uh, engineer. And I followed his lead. I wanted to be more like him than, than some of the others. And some of my other brothers, they did take some of the wrong turns and wrong paths. But people wonder, how was I able to follow Daryl? Because when I saw my mom and dad talk about him, they were smiling. And that was something I always looked for, you know, that that love, that respect, and that uh, acceptance from you, my mom and dad. And what was mom like? My mom was more of a laid-back type, you know. She was the sweetest person in the world. Um, if you ever hear me talk a lot on radio or TV, I'm always talking about cooking and bringing stuff into people and things. That was my mom. You know, my house was a neighborhood house, so she always cooked. Not like she had seven kids. She cooked like she had 70 kids. So if anybody stopped in, they would have something to eat. Uh, and everybody was always around because she was that person that was willing to cook for them, help them out, talk to them about something. And my pops was the same way, but my dad was the one that uh, if you ask him for something, you better be willing to listen to what he had to say because he's going to tell you straightforward, directly what he thinks about what you're, the, the situation you're in, why you're in that situation, and how the hell you can get out of it. That's just the way he was. Are you more like mom or more like dad? I have a combination of both of them, you know, because I am a giver, and I think that's why I do so much charity stuff now because, you know, they always made me feel like, you know, when you have a lot, you've been blessed, so you got to be a blessing to someone else. And that's the way I was, but, you know, I don't, basically hold my tongue I don't try and sugarcoat things because I've always felt that um dad again telling me uh you know he said if 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 you don't like something about somebody you tell them don't act like you like them and then let's say I go say hey Brian you know man I don't like this about Mitch you know and then later on you mentioned it to Mitch he he's gonna he's gonna not like it and he's not gonna respect me because I wasn't man enough to tell him he said but if you tell somebody something they dislike they may not like it, but they're going to respect you for telling them that. So that's how, that's, that's the way I am. That's where I've been. And I don't think that changing anytime soon because people say the older you get, the more you say, the more things you talk, you talk about and you tell people you, the truth. But I must have been old since I was like five, six years old. I've been that way. Did that get you into trouble when you were younger? It, it did in a sense sometimes. But, you know, in the long run, I think it, it gained it, it gave me more respect from a lot of people. And I'll say this, like even with my dad, you know, I said some things sometimes, and I thought I was going to get my butt whipped, but he was like, no, I told you to be that way. Mm. Which, when I saw him giving me that respect, you know, it made me feel like if if he did, because I knew how he was, anybody else would do it as well. Yeah, because society doesn't like our, our 10 and 12 and 14-year-old boys to be speaking out. And mm -hmm. I can remember in my childhood, I was the same way. I, I would speak out, and so there were my friend's parents all loved me because they could have adult type conversation uh -huh. with me but teachers i mean I yeah don't, oh i had issues with teachers yeah so <laughs> what was that like for you well, bringing that into the school the thing of it is is once they get upset then the question i ask is was i wrong mm -hmm. you know if i wasn't wrong then you can be you might not like what i said but if if, if i did something wrong send me to the principal you know but they rarely sent me to the principal mm -hmm. it was the mere fact that and i'm a young african-american kid growing up in louisiana back in those days where you know I guess they felt like I shouldn't be saying the things I say. Well, yeah, I play football. I play basketball. I ran track. But I was also one of the top students in the school. So I felt that I had – if I – my dad always said, research what you're discussing. And if you feel you're right, you argue your point. 
So I wish we had a debate team. I probably would have been on it because if I believe that I'm right about something, I don't care who is going to disagree with it. I'm not going to change my mind just because a teacher, a principal, or somebody that might be above me that they don't like it. Why the hell should I change if I'm right? You know, you may want to think about trying to push forward things that are not right to me just because you think that you have authority over me. So you sort of referenced growing up in Louisiana, being African-American. Mm-hmm. What were the demographics of your, your area that you well, were in? Well, in my hometown, you know, it's, um, it's I would say more, more white than black. But um, the thing about it is like, you know, I hear and I look back on things. And when I was growing up, I rarely dealt with some of the issues that you hear about from the South. But... I knew it was there. I knew it was around. I knew certain areas not to go to, uh, not get caught there at certain times. But I, I had friends that were, you know, that were white that we never discussed or treated in, in, in each other differently because from the moment I was young, growing up, I played sports with everybody, and it, it wasn't never it was never a problem. But you every once in a while found an older person who had something to say and said different things, which. I guess they thought they were talking over their head, but I knew exactly what was going on. I wasn't, you know, uh, ignorant to the things that had happened. I've seen when Roots came out and all that. I was younger. But my dad and mom were smart enough to sit there and, and educate me, talk to me about things. And I remember having a picture on my refrigerator, and I was like, you know, Dad, who are those people besides my friends? And I'm like, your friends? They don't look like you because mm-hmm. my dad was in the military. And it was like a, a Vietnamese guy, a Japanese guy, a white guy, but those were his friends. Why? Because if you're in the military, somebody watching your back, you know, you, you forget about what color they are. They become true friends. And I think the fact that he grew up like that, was in the military, and was always open with me, is like I was able to deal with any type of situation. It didn't make, make a difference to me. Was there ever a thought for you, looking up to your dad as a role model, that you would want to go and enlist and be in the military as well? Well, you know what? I... When I was younger and coming up, I know my dad was in the military, and you think about it, but my dad was like, he said, nah. He knew his his kids, and he said, nah, that's not something you want to do. Because I thought about going to the Naval Academy, uh, Army. I was looking at all those places to go to football, but play at one of those. He's like, nah, I don't see you wanting to wear the same stuff every day. He just knew little little ways I thought and things I was about that it wouldn't have worked. Was there a difference between the two of you, or was it the military the way that he had to go, whereas you had options? My dad, uh, mom wouldn't let him play football. Mm. And he dropped out, took his GED, and joined the military. <laughs> you know, uh, when I was 14, my mom didn't want me to play because, like, as, as a 14 year old in the ninth grade, they wanted me to be the starting quarterback of the 11, 12th grade team. How big were you in ninth grade? Five, nine and a half, 147 pounds. My mom didn't want to do it. And he was like, You remember what I did? And they allowed me to do it when I purchased her house. I say, you remember? See, if you wouldn't let me play football, I probably could have done this. So, but it's like, you know, I I started playing sports because he told me find some uh, outside things to do because, you know, when you, you know, you're not doing anything, you end up hanging around with the wrong people, you do the wrong stuff. So he says, start playing some type of sport. I started playing football. I was good at it. All my friends were playing. And I just stuck to it. Then as I got older, I realized I can – I can get, you know, a scholarship or something. And it can, I didn't think my mom and dad would have enough money to send me to school. 
But that was a way to get out of it and uh, move forward. What did dad do after he left the military? My dad was a chef and uh, worked at this uh, chemical plant at one point, but he was mostly a chef. And uh, that's where I get a lot of the cooking from. So he and was damn good at what he did, you know. But it's like I said, I growing up, I felt I was rich, Yeah. to be totally honest with you, because I, I had to swing bicycle and we always had a new car and Never had any issues. We had a lot of food. We could be, like I said, we my mom cooked for like the neighborhood in a sense. I never ever felt that I was less than rich, to be honest with you. And you said you did well academically, also. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did that come from? How did that come about? Well, my dad told us if we didn't have 3.0 or better, we weren't going to play any sports. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I remember, I remember telling him like, Dad, you know, you can only have, you just have to have a C average to play. That's a 2.0. He said, Well, that's not for a Mitchell. And he made me, he told me I had to have a 3.0. And that's what I maintained. That's the way I will. And that's the way I am with my kids. You know, uh, you can, it, I think if you just apply yourself, it's not hard to maintain that or better, you know. And uh, it, it was, I can remember in the ninth grade, ninth grade, yeah, ninth or tenth grade. I was, ninth grade, I was told to come home. I'm not going to practice. I did something. I forgot what the hell I did wrong. And I decided I was going to, go to practice anyway. <laughs> and I called him on Sunday to come pick me up from my cousin's house. He said, nah, I told you come home Friday. But he knew where I was. My cousin mom called him. But this is how he was. Well, I'm going to see if he calls. And that was about a five-mile walk from my house. And he told me to walk home. And I think that's the last time I got a, a, a whipping. <laughs> I never did nothing like that again. And it just, it certain things. And he was like, the whole time he talked, when he talked about my mother, he never said, your mom. He always said, my wife. Hmm. And he said, you know, you got my wife worried like that. What the hell is wrong with you? And I'm like, well, you know, once I didn't come, I was worried to call. He's like, oh, so you just made the thing just get you know bigger and bigger and bigger. You never just decided that one, let me just call home. Let them know where I'm at. Well, I figured Corey's mom told you. Yeah, she did, but that's not her job. So everything was always a lesson in his mind. So if you were to distill down the lessons learned from dad, what pick pick three of them. Uh, the word can't should not be something in your vocabulary. Um, take care of your family. And be honest. The first one is I have I have a three year old boy mm-hmm. and a two year old girl. So don't ask me how how life is right now. It's pretty hectic. <laughs> We're surviving. I'm sure. My wife and I. And uh, my three-year-old literally can't put his pants on. My two-year-old girl, psh, right on. Right on. And just the other day, he's saying, I can't, I can't. And I looked at him and I go, you can. What do you mean you can't? And and I think as parents, our tendency is to just do it for them. Yeah. Because it's easier. It's easier to just do it for them. But they don't. Easier for you. It's easier for me. Easier for him in the long run. Exactly. And so there's like a, it's almost like a chess match in your head because it's what's often easier for you is not necessarily what's best for him. I think. I don't know. I've Mm -hmm. I've never done this before, but I think that that's true. And sure enough, when I gave him some space and just said, no, you can do it, let's see if you can do it, he pulled up his pants. Yeah. But so much of parenting, I think. You have to get yourself out of that space of saying, I'm going to do this because it's going to be quicker. 
It's going to yeah. be easier. I'm not going to have to deal with any crying versus what is actually best for them. Yeah. And to me, that is actually similar to coaching. Uh, so much of coaching, and you see it a lot in your sport because your sport, coaches actually control a lot. They yeah. often control the plays. I mean, there are other sports where – uh, you know, for example, tennis, like the coach isn't even allowed to talk to them yeah. or golf, which I know you like, like mm -hmm. they're not other than the caddy, the swing coach isn't even allowed to talk to them during True. a tournament. So I, I love to look at those types of, uh, situations to learn because for me, my son gives me an opportunity to do my job better yeah. if I take that opportunity and run with it. I think, uh, it's just like, like you, you're absolutely right in, in practice when guys are going through football plays. Normally, you have every position coach standing next to his guys. And he knows the next play, so he's telling the guy, well, you have this, you have that, you did. And I've always felt that's not teaching them anything. How about let them do the play, and if they mess up, then you correct them. Because the best golf coach I ever had, he took me out. Like, most coaches take you in, and they want to break down your swing and take you all the way back to – Look, if I've been playing five years, I'm not about to let you take me all the way, all the way back. I want you to enhance what I have. So this coach took me out on a, a course, and we played. And then we came back, he gave me three clubs. And he said, you struggle hitting those clubs. So he worked on those clubs. So after five times of playing with him, I never went back to him. Mm -hmm. I started doing what he, what he taught me. I became a better golfer. But coaches, I think sometimes, just like you were saying what you said, you gave him some space. Give a kid some space. They'll learn a lot more. And, and I think ultimately they feel better when they do it themselves. Mm. Like when you help them with it, yeah, that they, he's happy it's done, he's moving forward, but he still feels like I could have done it if I worked at it. Even little kids, I'm sure they're thinking that way. And then when he did it by himself, was he pleased? Well, you mentioned the pride piece of, you know, your last name and, and the pride yeah. that comes with putting – the stick into the ground and you can see that in your child when they like literally they'll say like daddy i did it look exactly and it's it's what you're talking about there's a local basketball coach that will have uh practices sometimes where the players run the whole practice and mm. the coaches have to be silent and they have to be mute and the play it's a player's practice and um i've talked to uh people in college basketball uh which team was it um I think it was it was Iowa State years ago and the coach was there in the final four and the coach was just sitting there at the final four saying you guys are running practice because mm -hmm. at this point you guys know what to you do should. and and the freedom that that can give an athlete to know hey I can make the right decisions the flip side of that is it matters when right because mm -hmm. a coach does have an impact and does need to give attention to detail and do it you know make sure that they're helping them and it's like teach a man to fish versus giving a man a fish, yeah. right? Like there's times where you do need to just give a man a fish because they need it right then. Yeah. But what opportunities are there to teach a man how to fish? I think like when you're talking about this coach and, and things like that, if that coach does his job and makes sure his kids are learning, by the time he gets to that point so you're running, they should know it. You know, I, I remember in the ninth grade um, – as I ended up starting like six or seven games my last in my ninth grade for the 11th, 12th grade team. Then the next year, my coach called me into his office. He said, I need you to learn the offense back and forth. He said, because we're running everything from the line of scrimmage. So when I hear 
people say guys in the NFL can't call their own plays, uh, they don't let them do it. It's one of two things. Either the player has always been like in college where the, they get to the line, they clap their hands, they do, then they look to the sideline for the coach to give them the play. Point guard's the same way in basketball. Exactly. So, Or the coach is not confident enough in himself to uh, to release some of that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that power and let the guy go and do it. Because if, I've always felt this way. If the player goes out and do something, I, I, I remember in the 10th grade, I come in the huddle, and I call a play, and they're like, that play is not working. So I get to the line, and I change it. And coach, <laughs> he's like throwing his hands up when I'm changing it. Boom, it works. I look to the sideline, he gives me a thumbs up. Because when it works, the coach even looks better. So it went to the point where I would never go into a huddle. We leave the sideline straight to the uh, ball, and we run. And the first time we released it, we were playing against my cousin of Redemptors High School. And when they finally realized that we weren't going in the huddle, we were up like 20-something to nothing on them. It's over. And the coach, they're looking to the sideline to get uh, uh, some uh, instruction from their coach. And he's like, just line up and play. Line up in base and play. That's what I want you to do, line up in base. And we picked them apart. It's why if you listen to a lot of, uh, for example, basketball coaches, they'll stress defense. And I think – a, like Coach Calipari is big on this. He'll stress defense with his guys so that they have the freedom. That you play defense for me, I'll let you do whatever you want on offense. There you go. And because uh, he knows defense about effort, it's about you know t- communicating. Yeah. It's about the controllables. And he knows that he can actually work with them on that. Right? Like mm-hmm. I can yank a guy if he's not moving, if he's not talking. Yeah. Um, but offense. That flow that you have to get in is about reading and reacting. It's mm-hmm. about understanding and seeing. And he knows that he can't control that. Now, he can out of a timeout on an out-of-bounds play. Yeah. But he can't when they're in that when flow. When they're in it, they're in it. You, you can't. Yeah. You uh, slow that down, you're, you're, you're causing some trouble. I played quarterback from the eighth grade all the way through college. I played four years of college. And it's like a, being a quarterback – there are times when you just look at your receiver and they know he's not going to run the play he was going to run. Based on where that defensive back is lined up, I, I'm expecting you to make an adjustment. And I'll drop back and let the ball go, and boom, he didn't. I go to the side of the coach and like, what did you do, y'all? I didn't see you really check off. So I just looked at him. And then he said, oh, okay, no problem. That's something y'all worked on. Not really, coach. It's just <laughs> in the situation we're on the same wavelength. And I think when you, when he allow, like when a lot of coaches, like you're saying, allow players to begin to do a little more. And the thing about me as a quarterback, I didn't learn quarterbacking from being like the. I started off as a center in the sixth grade. Then that later that year, the guy moved me to a running back. But then I played defensive end and I played linebacker. And then in eighth grade, they moved me to quarterback. So I had played those positions, and every time I line up, I thought based on what they're trying to do, what we should do. And then as I got older and older, it worked being able to play the offensive position, knowing how a lot of the – because I played free safety at one point too, to know what guys are trying to do. And then when I moved to return, that was the simplest thing in the world for me. It's so interesting because I'm listening to you and I'm thinking what you're talking about before of like who's the guy that would always come to the line and make decisions. I think of Peyton Manning. Mm-hmm. Um, but Peyton was a groomed quarterback. Yeah. Um, also from Louisiana. Yes. Um, and 
it's interesting that your perspective was I played all those positions, so I knew exactly what was going on on a football mm-hmm. field. But there's always more than one way to get a Reese's, is what I say. Like, there's yeah. different ways to develop that IQ. And Peyton clearly, I mean, you know, he got to line. He studied. He studied forever. And <laughs> you, like, if you if you research Peyton, you know, like his ability to go in and research and study and know exactly what's going on and everything. And you hear it with Brady and you hear it with Breeze mm-hmm. and you hear it with the greats. The work that they do, uh, you know, Monday through Saturday is just unbelievable. And then you sometimes see these amazing athletes come into the NFL who can do everything, mm-hmm. but they're not, at least I'm not there, but reported uh, they're not in there Monday through Saturday yeah. studying it. And it's exactly uh, uh, kind of a sense of what I was explaining is that Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, they aren't going to run away from anybody. They're not as athletic which in turn they study more naturally. They have to. The guy that's a super athlete, even I think the coaches around him are lazy because they, in a sense, they know. When Michael Vick was in Atlanta, you watch plays, he drops back. It doesn't look like he's going. I think, I really believe they told him you drop back if something is there, take it. If not, make something happen because he's that that, uh, athletic. And I think the guy with that athleticism, even the coaches – don't push them or expect them to study as much. Now, being a, I was kind of the studious type. <laughs> you were a little combination of both. I was more, I, I wanted to know because like I, tell, like I said on the radio just the other day, when you jump on the bicycle, you don't say right foot, left foot. You just start doing it. And that's the way football is supposed to be. You're supposed to be able to drop back. You, you know, based on the route I call 478, I got a square in, I got a post, you know, and I got, a, I got another guy running the car corner. I have to know exactly, drop back, I need to move the, the safety, and when I plant, I go. I always tell people about Tom Brady. If you watch Tom Brady, I think before the snap of the ball, he knows I'm throwing to one or two people. Mm-hmm. And he drops back, and normally he looks left, and he lets it fly right because he knows who should be there. And Tom throws to spots, he don't throw to people. So as you watch that, I think that's how – Everything in sports should be, but it's not because a lot of times we watch their athletes that when the guy come from college, they throw straight at the person. Then over time, they start throwing at a spot because if you throw at the person, that defensive back is going to be running with the football the other way most times. And sports like basketball and soccer, you see the same thing. You see soccer, the great passers leave the ball to a spot and then you can go sprint and run yeah. and get it. And point guards, they always throw to spots. They don't throw to people. Yeah. Um, so I think there's something special about that. There's also something that I'm wrestling with in my mind that, that I want to get your thoughts on. So, um, And I can hear it in a lot of what you're describing. So I have this theory in this framework that your mindset and preparation should actually be different than your mindset for performance. So in preparation, I want to be humble. All right. What can I do better? How can I get better? How can mm-hmm. I improve? But in performance, like, I, like when I study these guys, arrogant. There, there's a step up from confidence. They get on the field, they believe they're the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is at the elite level. Perfectionistic in preparation, but the performance isn't about perfect. It's about being adaptable. You know, I, I'm going to ask why in preparation. Why are we doing it this way? Mm-hmm. Why? And then I'm just figuring out how in performance. So there's this distinction that separates how I'm preparing and how I'm performing. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think physically you want to be able to prepare at a level to where it's going to let you have confidence when you're on the field. Like when I watch the Redskins as of late, I rarely see them really go 
like close to what full speed is for a four-quarter game. I don't see them go beyond two quarters in, in, in preseason. And then when the season starts, they normally start slow. And I say that's because they did not have the confidence to be able to do it. When I was uh, coming through, I always – the coach is like, I'm only give you one return on this game. No, 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 no. I need to get the whole quarter or the whole half. And he's like, why? Because I need to be getting to the point so when the first game comes, I know I can go where I want to go. Just like if a guy runs a marathon, he doesn't just show up on that day and run a marathon. He goes one mile, maybe – five and 10 and whatever, and he, he builds up to the 26.2. So mentally, though, when I'm preparing, like I was saying about riding the bike, I don't want to be thinking when I'm on the field. Mm. I just want to react. So now I have to make sure I act, not study what I'm doing. I need to study their tendencies and see what they're trying to do to adjust. So I've always felt, felt that self-scouting was more of the thing. We have already shown you what we do. So what are they trying to do to stop our stuff? So now I have to be thinking, like you said, I told you earlier when I looked at look at my receiver, I have to be thinking if they do somehow, we're going to make an adjustment to it. So you could practice all week. for they, they, They're going to be in the 4-3. They're going to be in the 4-3. And then you just go out there and they're in the 3-4. Now what? Do you stop? No, you make an adjustment and you have to go. And if, if you're a good coach like Coach Gibbs was, if they decide to go 3-4, we're going to, we're going to do this. And you prepare for it. So when you get out there, you just go. You know, you react to it and you go. And I think, you know, it, it's it's the sense of when I'm preparing, I make sure I leave no stone unturned. When I'm playing, I'm having fun because I've already done the work. Like I've always told people, if I just had to play on Sundays, I'd play forever. Yeah. Because that's fun. That's easy. Practice and, and 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 researching and preparation, that should be the the difficult part, you know. Like like you look at uh, when you know, the guys in the military go to boot camp. We think that if they go to war, it's tougher. No no no, boot camp is tougher because I have to make sure, as a as a leader in it, a uh, general, I need to know who I can trust in certain uh, efforts. So I got to push them to a level, which. That's, that's, that's how training camp used to be. So, and I, as a, a military guy's son, I was raised that way. So I always wanted to see how far can I go. Like in a weight room, same thing. That's preparation for the season. So if I go in the weight room and I just outlift the running backs, am I really prepared? But what if I can outlift the linemen? And then while I do that, the linemen going to look at me and say, well, I can't let him outlift me which means he's going to work harder. You said something in an interview once that you tortured yourself in the offseason so you could have fun you in go. the regular season. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that a little bit more. And, and the reason I say that is just like I, exactly what I just I, – I loved getting on the field, and I was – I didn't have to think about what we had to do because I basically – when my friends wanted to run the D.C., I was in there in the playbook. I was in, in the film room. Because when I step on the field, I just want to go. Now I can add other stuff because I use a mental aspect in the game. I'm going to talk about stuff that I'm going to see if you how strong mentally you are. I don't care what it is. Whatever can make you get off of thinking about football, I try to do it. So during the offseason, I didn't lift normally with the running backs and the quarterbacks when I was in college. I lift with the linemen and the D linemen because I felt that pushed me 
and it also pushed them. I wanted to be as strong as I can possibly be. I wanted to be as fast and in, in, in as much shape as I can. And how do I do that? I don't do that by going in and just doing the, the regular stuff. I don't do that by going, coach said we got 10 100s, by running those 10 100s and just finish under the time they tell us. I want to finish faster and faster and faster. So when I stepped on the football field, nothing concerned me. Not that I'm not in shape, not that I didn't know. Now I just play and I have fun. And, and, and that's why I have, a, I have trouble watching the Redskins today, watching a lot of NFL, and then because I don't see those guys doing the same thing. But then I see all the injuries happen during the season because I feel the body, the human body is just like I call like a NASCAR, Indy, Indy 500, Indy 500 car, or the Formula One. You, they don't even take those cars. Them not being human, they don't just take a car out there on the day of the race and run it. They're racing it. They're finding out. They're fine-tuning to see how hard can I push this car and still get through it. To be honest with you, if they're going to run a 200-mile lap, 200-mile race, they probably ran 200 miles somewhere along the way to know that that car can do it. So I just feel that that's the way your body, that's the way you got to do your body and your mind. Take it to the, the, the farthest or the, the toughest of tough so when you get into action, it's easy. So it's obvious that you were raised that way. Um, you're raised with some blue collar work. You're raised mm -hmm. to be independent, to take things in your own hands. But what's driving you? Like what's motivating you uh, to, to do the work? Because it's hard. The thing that motivates me is that I never, ever wanted to be unprepared and then get out there and be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. As simple as that. Is that fear of failure or fear of fear, embarrassment? I think it's fear of failure because um, I remember being late for a meeting and Coach Gibbs said, if you're late again, we're going to send you back to Plaquemine. That's the, that was the best and the worst thing I can hear. Best thing because I'm not going to be late again. And the worst thing because that's the last thing I want to do. If I want to go to Plaquemine, Louisiana, I want to go because I wanted to go visit, not because I failed and had to come back. And I think that's the whole thing. You know, I, I think more people I, – I hated losing more than I loved winning. Understand? It's, yeah, I mean, a and, lot of athletes, Serena it, says that. It actually drives you more because the fear of losing than the excitement of winning. Because if I don't ever lose, I'm always winning. And if I push myself like that, if, if you get to a point, you're in your last lap, and you're like, you don't finish this lap. This coach said, if you don't finish this lap, you're probably going to lose this game. you probably run your best lap. But if you say, hey, man, get through it, man, you, you'll win it. You might just get through it. You're not going to force yourself to go as hard as you can. Yeah, there's something amazing. So fear of failure, a lot of people say, oh, don't do things out of fear of failure. Um, but the reality is underneath fear of failure is the word that you said, which was embarrassment. Mm -hmm. uh, embarrassment, we're wired to stay away from being True. embarrassed. That's why people are a lot of times afraid to publicly speak. Mm -hmm. uh, it's because they're afraid of embarrassing themselves. Why is that? We're wired that way because if we embarrassed ourselves in prehistoric days, we'd get kicked out of the tribe. We'd yeah, be done. Yeah. We wouldn't eat. Mm -hmm. So it's actually a defense mechanism. So fear of failure can be useful. Where it's not useful is when you're in the arena, when you're in the stadium. Yeah. And so when I watched you play, there's this fearlessness to you yeah. um, that even though you weren't the biggest guy, um, you played with this fearlessness. You were talking about trash talking earlier mm -hmm. and getting other guys off their focus. So 
there's this fear of failure and preparation that's going to help you take care of everything. But then it sounds like you shift into this fearlessness. And before we fired up the mics, I asked you about what it's like to be in the tunnel. And mm-hmm. so I'd love for you to take us there. How do you shift from, all right, you know, I don't want to get sent back to Louisiana to now you can even be so focused that you can talk trash. <laughs> I think the whole thing is like what I said earlier about um, torching yourself in the off season and things like that. To where, you know, now all I have to do is just go do the things I've taught myself that I learned. You know, like the, the little, little thing. I always say this thing about the riding a bicycle. Nobody gets on a bike and say right foot pedal, left foot pedal. You just do it. So I prepared and worked so hard to where now everything is just a reaction. And the reason I love, like people ask me the question, do I like putt return better than kick return? I say I kind of like both of them. Uh, they remind me of radio and TV. Punt return is so quick, so spontaneous. Kick return, you got a little time before you get to the action. But when you get to the action, everything that you learn all week, that goes out the window. Because when I ran the, the right return during the week, they always had my guys' butts in the hole and the guys lined up the right way. But as soon as I start in the game, the first guy, he's not where he's supposed to be. So I, what do I do? Do I just stop? No, now instincts take over. And I think the whole thing about it is what, what happens is with, what I think what you're discussing is guys forget to be instinctive. And they forget what has made them better than the other guys around. Your, in, your instinctiveness is what takes some people over the level, I mean over the hump. Because too many athletes are robotic instead of just having fun. So for me, when I'm walking down a tunnel – this is a, a prime example. I was in Philly. I'm now in my 11th year. This is when you're playing for Philly. I'm playing for the Eagles now. And you would think he's. I'm in my 11th year now. I'm a different guy. Well, I'm talking to Al Harris. He was my uh, teammate. Al was, was a cornerback. And we're talking about what we're going to do after the game. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about going to eat at the chart house. And then, and then once I stepped on the football field, whew, and I just took off running all the way around the field, and I'm catching punts and stuff. And then he comes right and say, so what time are you going to go? And I looked at him as if, what the hell are you talking about? And so I never went back to that topic. And we were walking off the field, and as soon as we stepped off the field, back going into the tunnel, I went back into the conversation. He said, dude, what just happened? I said, Al, when I step on the football field, I zone out, man. And – it, it had gotten to a point where I didn't think about it. It's just, it happened. So you've been around enough athletes when you're playing and then now post-career. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing thing that happens at the pro level, which is exactly what you're talking about. There are guys that work their asses off. They analyze. Mm-hmm. They, they are constantly looking over everything. Perfectionist. Boom, 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 boom. Trying to give yourself that advantage. But when they when they step on the field on game day, they stay in that analysis mode and they don't switch yeah. over to the instinctual mode. They stay in perfectionism and they don't adapt. Some of them even stay humble. Some of them stay in fear of failure and it can cripple them. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it goes to, I remember <laughs> Bobby Jackson was my running back coach for a little bit with the Washington Redskins. And Bobby had this way where he what you talked about earlier about your son, how when you can just do it for him. Well, he wanted to give you every little tidbit. And I say, Bobby, from Monday to Saturday, 
you're the coach. On Sunday, I'm the damn coach. Mm-hmm. He said, what do you mean by that? I said, when I'm on the football field, I can't do what you've told me to do every week. I got to do what works. And we're playing in, in Arizona. And all week he's like, press the tackle, press the tackle. I mean, try to get as close to the line of scrimmage on that tackle. didn't make you move. Well, I'm going to press the tackle. And the tackle had made his block, but nobody really blocked the damn defensive end. So the defensive end started crashing down. So as soon as I got the ball, I cut. Boom, I went for 47-yard touchdown. I come to the sideline. He's like, you didn't press that. I'm like, dude, what is your problem? I said, I scored a touchdown. So this is a coach who's trying to make you do it the perfect way. The way I did it was perfect for that moment. Because if I had pressed the tackle, I get tackled for a loss. So he's like, you you just don't like to listen. He's arguing with me about it. And I say, Coach, I'm going to advise you to get the hell out of my face. The camera I know is on me. I just scored. And I'm not going to be the only person embarrassed. And he's like, what do you mean by that? I say, leave. He kept talking. And I, bam, I hit him in his chest. They step away. And Terry Allen was like, Bobby, you want to step away from this one? So he gets his he say, you're not coachable. That's the type of person he was. I say, well, when you look at the damn, because they used to send us the pictures down. When you look at the pictures, you tell me what happened. And to his credit, he came back that next day and was like, you, you were absolutely right. I'm sorry. Mm. But think about it. He's too late now. The camera already caught you in my face and caught me do whatever. So people going to make their, their opinions based on whatever. But you didn't get, he didn't give me the, the respect he wanted me to give him. I told you on Sunday, I'm going to do what works, not what you taught me all week. Because what you teach all week doesn't work like that during a football game. There's two thoughts. One, I read Tom Coughlin's book, Earn the Right to Win. And Coughlin's a fascinating guy, military background. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the book, he talks about transforming with the Giants and really his relationship with Michael Strahan and having to adjust his style yeah. for the people he was coaching. And he talked about you earn your paycheck Monday through Saturday. Yeah. Sunday should be free. There you go. Uh, so that resonates with me. <laughs> um, and I just he has so much good stuff in there. Uh, he talked about humble enough to prepare, confident enough to perform. Um, and the other thing that is is really like sticking with me is the term coach and. The word coach comes from Hungary. Uh, There's a town in Hungary called Coaches, K-O-C-H-S, Coaches. And that's where the horse and buggy or the carriage Mm -hmm. was invented. And so uh, the coach or the horse and buggy helps people get from where they are to where they want to go. So then University of Oxford took that word coach and started using it for academic coaches Mm -hmm. because they would have tutors that would help students get get from where they are to where they want to go. And then sports coaches and all that good stuff. And you think about a horse and buggy, and I was literally, Brian, I was thinking about this this morning in the shower. The shower sometimes is where magic happens. Um, And I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, so the word coach comes from this place where I'm driving the horse and buggy. You know, they didn't have Uber. They didn't have an app. You didn't uh-huh. have GPS. <laughs> it's like, I know where we're going. Yeah. You tell me where to go, and then it's up to me to figure it out. Exactly. Um, but that word today, it's it's different. A coach now, my job to help you get from where you are to where you want to go might involve space. It might involve space. It might ask questions. It, it, exactly. It's different for different people and situations and circumstances. You know what? You say that, and... I don't know if you ever listened to my radio show, but the last two weeks, I've because in the, in the analysis of Jay Gruden, 
I look at people like Joe, Coach Gibbs, who I consider was a great coach. Uh, I look at people like, you know, Don Bro, who's my running back coach, my first, first coach here. Uh, I go to Ted Williams, who's my running back coach in Philly, and I look at Belichick. And I've always said a great coach is a coach who, if I come in as a five, you get me to a seven. If I come in as a five and I stay as a five, you're not a, that good of a coach. I just, and that's what I feel because, like you said, a coach is someone that's supposed to take you to where you're supposed to go. Everybody that comes into the NFL today, especially, I don't think they're fundamentally sound. And most coaches in the NFL assume that you're fundamentally sound. And if they were to just able to get a small portion of practice, to take you through those fundamentals on a daily basis, which Don Bro did, and I would say Bobby Jackson did the same thing, Terry Williams did it. You can get a guy who comes, I was a raw player, I was a quarterback for nine years, and I get here and they're like, you know, we're going to allow you a year, then you could compete for a job at running back. I'm like, okay, but we want you to return kicks and punts. So I was never a returner, never returned kicks and punts. I was always a quarterback and running back in college. I mean, high school, college, all the way back. Running back, I hadn't done really since I was in the seventh grade. And and tell everyone where you went to college and, and that experience. I went well. to the University of Southwestern Louisiana, which is now University of Louisiana Lafayette. And I played running back in the seventh grade. In the eighth grade, my coach moved me to quarterback because he said I was the best athlete and I had the best arm on the football team. And he's like, "Yo, you're smarter than every damn body. So he, he moved me uh, to to – Coach to Coach Bridgewater moved me to to quarterback. Don Jones was the coach of the varsity team, who in the eighth grade I played mostly ninth grade, and then in the ninth grade, Coach Jones watched me playing a game one night and was like, "Look, we want you to play. Report over to the varsity team." I'm like, "Coach, how am I get there?" So they had a van pick me up from the junior high school and take me to the senior high school, and within no time, I'm the starting quarterback. But the the whole thing is. Those coaches saw me as a raw athlete, but they began to show me things to help me elevate my game. I never, ever lost the fact that I can run the ball and I was a raw athlete and athletic, but they made me become better as a thinker, better as a quarterback. Then I got to college, David Culley. This guy had me throwing footballs because like everybody always say I could throw the ball so far, so hard, but I had no touch. And he would make me just stand at the five-yard line and throw the ball right over the top of the goalpost, the actual crossbar. And I had to try to just make it barely touch it and just drop over it. Then I would have to throw and drop balls into trash cans in the corner and all this. All of a sudden now, I'm not only that guy who's an athlete, I'm becoming a quarterback. You know, and when I got to college, I was still an athlete. And he made me do all these things, so they were enhancing my game elevating it I get to the pros now to hell with being a quarterback you're going to be a return man which that was the easiest transition because all it is is catching the ball and running but catching punts was difficult the first time I caught punts I might have had 20 punts from Ralph Mojenko left-footed punter in the wind and I might have touched one of them so I didn't catch it so the start wasn't very good but Wayne Severe stayed with me and taught me and then Three years, and then I I deserved, developed a thing where I knew the way the ball was kicked. I let it bounce and catch it on the run because hmm. I was afraid to try and catch it because I didn't I wasn't sure. P 
Pete Rodriguez came in and took me through all of these, take me all the way back to the fundamentals. And then I got to the point where I'm not worried about dropping the football now. I was able to look at the ball. I watched the spin. I know where it was going to be. I can move to a spot to where I expect that ball to be, look back at the coverage, come back to the ball, catch it, and take off. Because they took me from what I was and took me to where I needed to be, as you say, the coach back from uh, in the other country. So your career uh, from kickoff and punt return perspective is illustrious. Uh, no one else has done it as good as you did. But there had to have been muffs in there. There had yeah. to have been plays where you got blown up. Oh, yeah. How do you come back from those? My <laughs> what, what it is, it's like it, you know, if, if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. Because my f- first full game of returning, the body bag game, I ended up playing quarterback, running back, and punt return and kick return in that game because nine people got hurt. I was backing up two of those quarterbacks and some running backs and both of those returners. So everybody I was backing up got hurt. So just to walk into that game and had to – but I didn't walk into the game scared about getting hurt. My mind said, well, it's Monday night football. I'm getting my opportunity to play. And that's the way I, I walk in the huddle and I say, look, man, I'm running this first ball. It's always did in college. And I, I posted this on uh, on uh, LinkedIn just a few weeks ago, and it was over 154,000 views. It's a four-play series where I run one ball, I throw a pass, I throw another pass to Ricky Sanders, and he goes out at the half-yard line, and I, I score a touchdown. I think it was the only time we had crossed the 50 and scored a touchdown that day. You know, but it, it, the mindset goes from – because I was prepared because they had given me a, a play a playbook that would be mine if I had to go into the game. We had practiced it, and I had studied it relentlessly. So when I got in the game, I wasn't even thinking about the game. I was thinking about Monday night football. I had told all my friends, I will play quarterback in the NFL. And my mind went to that. But if I wasn't prepared, I could have never thought about those things. There's some science around this concept of whenever you face – Um, something dangerous, we can either look at it as a challenge or a threat. And so in this body bag game where you have nine people go Mm -hmm. out, you know, someone else might have gone in and been threatened by that situation. And when we're threatened, we freeze up, we Mm -hmm. tense up, and we want to retreat. But what I'm hearing from you is you looked at it as a challenge. You're like, all right, let's go. And you went toward it. Any idea what's underneath that for you to get you to the place where you can say, all right, this is a challenge, let's go? It, I think it's just like a, the the over preparedness, you know, being being prepared. I think that's the whole thing about when guys are like you said, you you said humble, and I think it's like it, it makes people they slow down or they hesitant when you're not prepared, because when you prepare yourself, you can go full speed, you can go wholeheartedly at it, but when you don't, you you're still thinking about. What you have to do, like we always say, when you're thinking on the football field, it's too late. Yeah, you know, because if I go, should I? He's gone, you know. And and I've always been the guy. When I was younger, we would play we play uh, chicken. We run full speed at each other, and I don't care how big the person was, I never would move, because I've always felt. But what I did as I ran full speed at him, I was getting myself in a defensive position to what if he doesn't move, I can take the hit. And every once in a while, I get hit, and the guy that was bigger, I hit him, he's hurt. 
because he was just running straight. He never got himself in a defensive position. All right, beautiful. So there's something there. It's, it, you were thinking. You're just thinking about the right things. Yeah. And what but you're thinking, you, it's like preparedness too. Yeah. See, I'm running full speed. So at that point, I'm like, get get defensive. He's thinking he's going to move. He's going to move. Oh, Lord, he didn't move. Yeah. So I got prepared. And that's why as a quarterback in college and in high school, and this is like you talk about the mindset. My coach always said, don't get hit. So I'm running to the sideline. I slow down and step out of bounds. The guy dies, hit my ankle. I sprain my ankle. Mm. At that point, I was like, I'm not doing that again. And he's like, what are you talking about? I say, coach, by me not being full speed, he had a chance to hurt me. I just have a sprained ankle. Grabbed my ankle and I went back on the field. I said, he could have broke my ankle. So what are you going to do? I said, you'll see. So I've always found a way to that last move to get them off balance, and then I ran over them. And then I got – so now I was 147. Now I start getting stronger. I get to college. As a 200-pound quarterback, I power clean over 345 pounds. I squatted over 600 pounds. I benched over 400. Plenty strong. So when I came at you and I got into that power clean position, like bend my knees and explode, I don't care how big you are. If you're not prepared, I'm, I'm going to take care of you. So now I have a different mechanism now. Not only do I feel I'm as fast as you, but not being big, I feel I'm as strong as you. So my confidence level is off the roof now to a point where I might be a little ignorant out on the football field. <laughs> ignorant, arrogant, whatever it might be. But athletic arrogance, as Coach Gibbs called it. You need to have it's a, He would talk about athletic arrogance. What else would Coach Gibbs sort of instill in you? Because you mentioned earlier you said that he had a, a big impact. Well, Coach Gibbs was a person. I look at the way he would walk, and he'll ask you a question about what happened on that play, and you tell him, and 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 it was enhanced even more after Jeff Bosick told me the story. Coach would just stop and look, like and look it in the air, and then he'll come down and say, okay, we're going to get – and he'll draw up some stuff on how we're going to make an adjustment. You remember them scoring 35 points in the, in one quarter. And Jeff Bostic said he came to the sideline. He said, what's going on, Coach? I mean, Jeff, what's happening on the play? What, what defense are they running? He said, well, Coach, they, they brought both of the uh, ends down to a three technique. They're flexing the center a little bit off the field. So they and when they run basically the three, four, like they call it solid dub fist. They were running this new 46 defense. And Coach Gibbs, he said, stood there like this for three minutes and say, okay, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Got a clipboard, I mean a, a, a little whiteboard, and drew up some stuff. Went from what the whole whole week of practice was to we're going to run these five to seven plays. Now, the defense had to adjust and make some adjustment too, which Richie Pettibone was great at. They scored 35 points in one quarter. Just from adjusting. From making an adjustment and not being stuck in the fact that I put it up in there, we have to run it. No, I have to make some adjustments based on what they're doing. And then it got to the point where the Redskins running the counter tray would destroy the 46 defense. And other people tried it, but they couldn't do it like the Redskins did it. You know, there's a question I have for you. I worked with Maryland football a little bit, and they had a mobile quarterback. And I didn't realize this because I didn't play football, but what happens when a mobile quarterback runs is that the offensive line is out of whack. Mm -hmm. The wide receivers have to block. Mm -hmm. uh, the running back doesn't get the ball. And... I want to get your thoughts because you were a mobile quarterback. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I didn't realize it until I was on the sideline and I actually saw the reaction to everybody else. That quarterback might run for ten yards, but everyone else is doing a job that they didn't really want to do. Yeah, 
it, 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 it's, I'll say this. If the mobile quarterback, I'm trying to see how I'm going to try to word this. I'm going to use, all right, John Wall and Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving's, and with the Boston Celtics offense, is made for him to go one-on-one a lot. So they can adjust to it based on this is what they do all the time. But John Wall with the Wizards, it's not made for him to go one-on-one all the time. It's made for him to pass and set people up, break down the defense and set them up. So when he starts going one-on-one, they're out of whack. Maryland runs that offense where they want the guy to drop back and throw it out of the pocket, but they're not very good at throwing out the pocket. Right. So when he drops back, like the athletic quarterback, it, this, this is the thing that hinders him. When he drops back, he doesn't see anything. He feels, I can get it myself, and he immediately starts to run. Just like if I were turning a punt and I got a right return on, and I'm running to the right and I look and I see this big old hole to the left, and I go left, what's the first thing? My, my guy was blocking this guy to try to make him, you know, make me be able to run right, so he's trying to knock him in. So if I go left, the guy has a quicker angle than me, so my guy holds him, right. and a penalty is called. Make him look bad, potentially. It's exactly what you're talking about. When the guy is expecting to pass, and this quarterback, this, this mobile quarterback decides to start running, or they're supposed to have somewhere the quarterback, the running back is supposed to get the ball, receiver is supposed to get a route, Everybody, ha- they, they, their jobs instantly change. And if your job instantly change all the time, you can't do it like you talked about the basketball being in the flow. So it messes it up. Like Donovan McNabb is my cousin, and I was playing with Donovan, and I said, "This was, I said, listen, because Donovan had this thing about I don't want to be known as a running quarterback. I want to be known as a passing quarterback too. And I said, all I know is you better use your damn ability to get the first down because too many times you get guys get to this level, and I think they run just to run instead of running because it's a necessity. Because if I'm athletic enough and – I don't see my guy instantly. My first thing is to tuck, drop the ball and run. Instead of, how about move? Because Tom Brady is mobile, but he's not a runner. Mm-hmm. So what Tom does is slides in the pocket. And all you have to do is sometimes slide a, a foot over or a yard over. But the instinct of that running quarterback is to go. He forgets that. And then, then what he'll do sometimes over time, his offensive line now thinks if he's oh he's gonna run, so they go downfield. And then what does he do? He throw the ball at the last minute, illegal man downfield. Yeah, the game's not set up for that. Yeah, for it, it is a system, it is a framework. There is roles, yeah. especially in, in football, and that was something that caught me off guard. And look, uh, it being in this area, we just saw it at the end of this season with them trying to play Mark Sanchez mm-hmm. uh, versus Josh Johnson, um, and. and Josh gave him a different look than Sanchez, and it looked better. And it looked better. In the last game, they left Mark, they left Josh in the pocket, which is not his is not his strength. Yeah, Um, it's 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 like a it's weird though. Just think about it, okay? When I have most, if you remember, whenever I caught a punt, most of my punts looked the same. My returns looked the same because I only ran four to five yards right or left if it's a left return or where I caught the ball. Right. And then once I hit that spot that was five yards from me, five yards out, I I got upfield. Now you begin to make because you have to action then. Now you make things happen.
But I never caught the ball and start that way and start that way and start that way. That's when you see all the penalty flags being thrown because those guys are expecting you to be somewhere and you're not there, so they got to try to adjust on the fly, and it doesn't work most times. And it's interesting because I don't know what your 40 time was, but what was your, do you remember what your 40 time Fastest was? Fastest 40 time was a 4.35 when I ran track in college, but when I was in the league, probably about 4.4, four, 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 one. So you weren't the lightning you, – you were a big – you were a strong, stout guy, yet you did it better than anybody else. Whereas sometimes you'll see these guys who are lightning quick and they go east-west, mm-hmm. um, and they might break one. Um, but you were able to consistently just get large yeah. chunks uh, and be dependable and reliable. And I want to get – one of the big things I want to find out from you is you were part of a Super Bowl team. Mm-hmm. Um, what made that team special? Give me some of the team dynamics and and what allowed that team to have the success. Because then you were on teams that didn't have I think that much success. that team – was to a point where they were they had enough veteran players and enough young players the the right mix to where the dynamic was that of the young guys learned from the older guys and, and the older guys got their energy from the young guys but I'll say the thing about that team is that everybody did their job and I think it's as simple as that Everybody did their job to the best of their ability on a consistent basis over and over and over again. And then you had one of the best adjustment coaches as Coach Gibbs on offense and Richie Pettibone on defense. So now we are schemed up properly and we don't make a lot of mistakes. That year I think the offense and defense were – offense, defense, and special teams were top three, top four, all of us. So you have – you have these teams that are playing at this level, but they don't make a lot of mistakes. You had an offensive line where the quarterback got sacked nine times in 16 games. Mark Rippon, who can't really move, nine times. So I think the dynamic there was kind of similar to the Princeton offense in basketball. They keep doing things that make you have to stay dedicated to chasing this basketball. And what happens? Somebody messes up. Somebody gets lax, and then all of a sudden, boom, they score on you. What Coach Gibbs in the offense was, we're going to run this ball on first down. We're going to get three yards. We're going to run it again on four. We might bust it. We might get four yards. But then we're going to make you think we're running it again, but we're going to hit you with a play-action pass. And we were on. It's just that we were so – and I talk about preparing yourself. We were so prepared that year to where – we rarely made mistakes, but every time somebody made one, we capitalized off of it, which we made you get into a different mindset, and we stayed in the same mindset. There's something that you're talking about that's hitting me, which is the polarity of patience and aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. Having the patience to run our stuff and know what we do, but if I stay with that patience and don't ever take opportunities to be aggressive, I'm probably not going to take enough risks to win. Uh, but if I look golf, let's use a golf analogy. So I've worked with a lot of junior golfers. <laughs> golfers call me more than anybody else. Um, and, uh, in golf, aggressiveness can really, really hinder you. It can hurt you. It can really hinder yeah. you in ways that other sports, uh, for example, in basketball, if I drive to the hoop hard and there's some contact, the offensive player usually gets the foul mm-hmm. call. In golf, if you're aggressive, there's literally hazards out there to try to take <laughs> your ball from you. And that's why golf is one of the more frustrating sports in the world. But um, in golf, we talk about um, conservative targets and aggressive swings. Yeah. And so you can be conservative and aggressive. And I think great teams also know how to be patient 
but also know how to be aggressive mm -hmm. uh, when it calls for the aggressiveness to come out. But if I'm just aggressive all the time, it's the same thing you were saying earlier about thinking. Um, so I agree. You, you don't want to think but we've all seen athletes who don't think at all and then they're just aggressive and they yeah. just look like a wild horse because they're not actually using their mind. Mm -hmm. So you need to think, but it needs to be in the right spots and the right thinking. It's clarity instead of clutter. Yeah. Um, but it's the same thing as I think about patience and aggressiveness. You need both of those because if you're just aggressive all the time and you can see athletes sometimes get over aggressive yeah. and force stuff. That's when they're starting to think for themselves instead of for the team. See, and then what I'm saying about with, with Coach Gibbs, let's say the, that offensive line we had was probably arguably one of the best in history. But they were getting first down, second and nine, second and six, second and nine, third and one. Oh, we do whatever we want then. You have to be aggressive. We can still run. We can run the ball. We can play action pass. But once we get up, let's say we're up now 14 points. Now your, your offense, have to, you have to throw the football. Richie wants to send a blitz anyway. So he is still doing his thing. You're out of your game plan now. We get a turnover. Now this is the aggressiveness. Coach Gibbs comes out on first down. It looks like he's about to run the counter trail again. Ah, oh, it's a play action pass. He throws it. That's the aggressiveness. But he stuck to his game plan. He just took it to a play that he had for later. He ran it sooner. Instead of running the, the counter, I now run a counter play action pass, and now the receiver who comes at you to block you, you're the defensive back, you're trying to beat me because you worry about that run because we've been killing you, and whoop, now Gary Clark's wide open. When matters so much. Yeah. When am I humble and when am I arrogant? When am I patient and when am I aggressive? Yeah. And you have to be present in order to understand when do I need my instincts and when do I need to analyze? Mm -hmm. uh, and you're talking about your running back coach earlier, like when he needed to confront you with that situation, if he had waited until watching the film and then confronted you, it would have been, maybe he would have seen something differently. So and, and I think if he would have said this and watch a film, like you're, you're right. And he goes, look, Brian, I understand you have to go back on this one, but I want you to really press that if, if you can. Oh, gotcha, coach. Different conversation. But he came, you got it. And I'm like, hold on. <laughs> you know, already I'm in that mode. I'm in the, 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 the aggressive mode during a game on football anyway. You can't come at me aggressive like that because I'm going to come right back at you. And that's how most athletes are. When they get into it, it's the way you come at them. Now, some players need that. And some, some guys you better never say a word to during the game. And I've always said coaches have to be more of a, a psychologist, psychologist type. You can't paint everybody with the same brush. Yeah. Because I, I played with – I had, like, as a quarterback, I had receivers where they'll run the wrong route, and all I had to do was look at them and do this. They knew. Other guys, I had to say, hey, you know, you ran – I had to console them in a sense. But other guys, I could tell them whatever I felt like, and that's the way they responded. You know, I, I saw an interview with you where you were talking about uh, you liked football, but you didn't love it, but you loved competing. Mm -hmm. uh, I run into that with football players more than any other sport. I, I hear of it in swimming. I hear of it in wrestling. I hear it in cross country and track. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are certain sports that uh, I, I don't hear it in basketball. I don't really hear it in hockey. I don't really hear mm -hmm. it as much in soccer. Um, but those sports... Um, you hear guys like the when I, as I said, when I was at Maryland, I'd hear guys say, Yeah, I want to play in the league. Well, why do you want to play in the league? 
I can take care of my family. I can, uh-huh. you know, set myself up. And you see guys retire in football at 30 when they still have some juice left in the tank, or now we see it at 25. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to get your thoughts in sort of football and, and how you think about football. You know what? I, I think I began to love football as I went through it. When I was younger, I started playing because my dad said it'd keep you out of trouble. And then when I started to think, well, it can get me a chance to get a college degree. And then once I got to the NFL, I mean, got to college, I'm like, well, damn, man. After my second year, you got pro scouts. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, I really like this. You know, I can probably go to the league and take care of my family. But the way I train, I was like, it's more than me just wanting to do this. I got, I must really like this because I'm serious. It hurts after games. It man. hurts, and you and you 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 torture yourself, and you go through things, and you know the risk out there. I'm watching guys blow out their knees and things like that, but I can't let myself think about it because now I think I got fear. If you don't go full speed, something happen. But when I got into the NFL, and in the off season, you know, I I asked Art Monk, and I say, "How long do you take off?" He said, "Maybe about a week or two. And I'm thinking to myself, "You do what?" Because my first year, we've ended the season. I didn't work out again for like after a month and a half. But I gained like 15 pounds. So I said, you know what? I'm going to try what Art does. So I took a week off, and then I started playing racquetball. Started riding the bike. Which now football is my whole life. You can't do anything every day as dedicated if you don't love it. And I think the whole thing about it was I think I loved it. But I wasn't in love with it. And then I realized, you know, you know, you, you're dating with somebody and you're like, yeah, I really like her, really like her. And you don't want to say you're in love with her. So every time somebody asks you, you're like, nah, we cool, we cool, we cool. But you never say anything. But every, t- every time you think about doing anything, you think about doing it with that person. It's, more, it's stronger than you want to admit. And I think the, the game of football was like that with me. And when I realized it around year two or three, you know, I, I we went to the Super Bowl. I'm like, because I've always dreamed of playing the Super Bowl. Now I'm there. My goal was I want to be back. And then the way I would go after it. And now I'm in my 30s. I get to my 30s. I'm 31, 30, and I'm running with these 21-year-olds and doing the thing. You can't do that if you don't love it. There's Andre Agassi's book was awesome, and uh, I highly encourage everyone to read it. It's, it's just a really well-written book mm-hmm. and gives insight because tennis is another sport that – it's it's a grinding sport. I don't think people realize they just think it's like this country club sport. Nah. The guys on tour, they crush their bodies. Um, and the training of it is, is really, really mm-hmm. difficult. And he talks about, like, at the end of each chapter, I think he says, I hate tennis. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the book is all about his story and his relationship yeah. with tennis. And there is a love for the process and 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 the pain of the sport. And I think that's the similarity that exists in wrestling, which is those guys have to take care of their body so much. They literally have to weigh in um, all the time. And then they're going one-on-one and there's embarrassment and there's just an intensity mm-hmm. to that sport cross country and track. Uh, you, 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 especially cross country, they're running, you know, you hear this with marathon runners, yeah. like it's, it's painful. Um, you know, I mentioned swimming, it's monotonous. You're just going mm-hmm. over and over again. So there's something with pain, but there's also an appreciation for that pain because it allows you to have fun on, on Sunday as well. I've always said that that which you love can give you the highs of highs and it will give you the lowest of lows. 
I guarantee you when you think about life and the things you love, your family and all, you felt real bad about some things that happened or they've done, but you never stopped loving them. Because they have also you also see how good it was. You know, if you've been in a relationship, you've had downs, you've had arguments, but nothing nothing ever said, I want to leave this person. Like, I, I don't think anything in football ever made, made me want to quit till I couldn't do it at the level I wanted to do it. But I never went through, like, I hate this train, I want to quit. I'm not going to run, I'm going to quit. I don't like this coach. No, it was normally the coach was on my nerves, I'm going to prove him wrong. You know, uh, if somebody doubted me, I'm going to show him I could do it. This guy got the best of me next time we meet up. You know, it was always something driving you to go farther instead of someone to pull me away from the game. So I was going to end it, but there's one more question, um, which is competitiveness. I had a college coach ask me recently, can you cultivate competitive spirit? And I said, I think you can build on it, um, but it's really hard to work with an athlete who doesn't have an inner competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And I've worked for NBA teams and major league soccer teams at the combine and interviewed players. Mm -hmm. And I would say competitiveness has to be a baseline. It has to be foundational, fundamental uh, for a pro athlete. I'm curious for you, do you think competitiveness is something that you can build on? What do you, what do you think about that? I, I think competitiveness is just like leadership. It's either in you or it's not. But I think what you can do, a guy that's slightly competitive, if you build his confidence, he'll compete more. Mm. Okay? And that's the thing about I think too many times we try to force guys to be more competitive or be a leader. And you, you mentioned something earlier about self-motivated like self type. I've always said if I was to ever be a coach of a team or owner, I'm going to have someone like you sitting in here and you're going to help me find out is he a self-motivated. Because he's not, I don't want him on my football team. Because I think those guys make it even easier for you as a coach. But I think that if you build on someone's confidence, you will find that that person will be – we'll call it competitiveness. But no, he's more confident. And most people are not competitive or not leaders because they don't have confidence in themselves. And I think that's the whole thing. Like when I talked about when I get into the weight room and I'm sitting there with a guy who was six foot five, he's 300 pounds, and I'm outlifting him. I'm not afraid of anything now. And then I get on the football field and I go one-on-one -on -one with a, a linebacker. A guy, this linebacker, oh, he can hit. He's five, he's six feet. He's 245 pounds and I'm a 215 pound and I run through him. The next time, I'm going to run harder through the next guy. So I'm building my confidence. And it just makes me want to try something else, which in a sense is increasing your competitiveness. But it's make, if you work on the, the thing that works with it, I think more, the confidence. Because when guys get more confident, it's hard to stop that guy. Yeah, so what I'm hearing from you is if you can build someone's confidence, their inner belief in themselves, they're going to be more willing and likely to compete, which is an interesting – At a higher level. At a higher level. Yeah. I just did yoga the other day, and uh, I'm probably one of the least flexible people on the planet. And It's my, probably the toughest thing you ever do in your oh, life. Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> you sweat like hell. Did you? Well, golf has also <laughs> been brutal for me. Uh, yeah. We'll talk about that another time. But that, yeah. is, that is the best sport in the world, I think. Golf, it's brutal. This is what I've learned about golf. Golf is closer to life than any other sport. Because normally going through life, you're by yourself and making your decisions. Even if you're married, you got brothers and sisters, you have to make your decisions. 
And like you got your foursome, so that's your brothers and sisters. But when you get over the ball, they can't help you hit that hit that ball. And that ball is sitting still. So you, when you have a ball coming at you at 95 miles ball, if you just stick the bat out, it'll go out the infield. But this golf ball is sitting here. So basically it's like you have to be the coach to that golf ball. You want this golf ball to start out to the right but come back to the left and hit the green and check. But if you haven't done all the things you're supposed to do prior to that moment, like practice, learn how to hit down on the ball and all that, it doesn't do it. So in life, you get to situations, I want to be this, I want to be that, and now you're in, a, in an interview. And they ask you, did you do this, take this class? No, have you prepared? But what have you done? I just want to be, if you don't do the things, you can't expect it to happen how you want it to happen. I'm laughing because yoga is very similar. Like I know both golf and yoga for me starting off, like I am as bad as you can be. Mm -hmm. There are different levels of where people start, but to your point, if you don't work at both of those, like you reap what you sow. So they both require work and time. Um, and, and there are benefits to it, but you have to put in the work. So I was sweating, sweating there and I'm watching these people way older than me be able to do all these poses. And I'm like, man, but like they ask you to do an intention to start the session. And mine was like, just try your hardest. Just keep trying. Mm-hmm. So there are times where I was standing up. I'm like, okay, I need to take a breath, but now I'm going to get back at yeah. it. And there's times in golf, trust me, where I want to throw my bag and my clubs <laughs> in the water. I was like, okay, let's just finish the round. Just remember, finish you're, not, you're not like the pros. They I'm, don't, I'm they don't not, give you clubs. No, no, <laughs> don't no. throw yours don't, away. <laughs> no, I need them. So I'd love to finish up by just giving you a megaphone. Uh, I know you're on TV and radio, mm-hmm. uh, foundation. Promote the things that you want to give a megaphone to that you think deserve a megaphone and uh, just give you that well, space. Well, daily, I'm on uh, from one to four on um, the, the the Team 980. That's an Urban One uh, radio station. Uh, myself and Scott Lynn. And then after that, I'm on, normally at NBC Sports Washington where I do a, a, I do a multitude of shows. I do uh, Redskins 100 with J.P. Finley and Peter Haley. Uh, also, I'm doing a pre and post game. We had a lot of other things in the works to come out. Um, I'm um, now starting to um, get my foundation back. I kind of took a, a – when I stopped playing everything and – was readjusting life. I stepped away from it to make sure I got everything right. But I kept doing charity work. But I'll be having that come back up to Brian Mitchell Foundation. Um, and then I'm going to get more into the motivational speaking stuff. Uh, what I've learned is that I, I sent out a ton of things on, on Instagram, which is BMitch30, uh, Twitter, BMitch, uh, Live, uh, at BMitch Live NBCS. And then on Facebook, I put out a lot of motivational talks every day. And people, when I stop, they go, no, 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 we need that. We, And it just lets you know how people can take little things that you see as just something that you found along the way to help you, what it can do for somebody else. So I've been trying to do that more often. So it's just I, I'm, I'm all over the place just having fun and um, trying to just stay normal. I, that's the thing about me. As much as I try and do, I don't ever want to – like people always say, man, you're this. I said, no, nah, I'm just a regular person. I just My job just happened to be on TV and in radio. You know, most people don't have that opportunity. I don't think I'm any different than anybody else. I'm struggling to be the best I can be and always be good at what I'm doing. Well, I appreciate you sharing your journey, your story, uh, and all the little tidbits and stories about your mentality and mm-hmm. uh, some of your teammates' mentality and, and what you went through in the NFL. Uh, there's one last thing, which is uh, I had on a Navy SEAL uh, on here and he talked about he's a big Instagram guy and he said you know I served my country I did all this stuff 
but I'm on Instagram right now and I'll get messages from people that'll say that message changed my life. Mm-hmm. And he'll say in a lot of ways, Instagram has provided me more fulfillment than my military experience did, mm-hmm. which is a mind blowing thought. Yeah. But if you really think about the power of social media now, we do have the ability to connect with people and help people in a way that's pretty special. So it's great that, that you're it's doing that as and well. And I think it, it, social media, I think us people that try to do good have to be cognizant that there are good people out there just like in life. And don't allow the trolls on social media to make you not want to do it because there's just like the Navy SEAL told you, just like a lot of people tell me, you miss they will miss out on something if, if we stop doing the things that we do. So I would say anybody out there that's doing positive on social media, trying to enhance somebody else's life, don't let the trolls stop you from doing it. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then Instagram intentional underscore performers. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate it, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I loved getting on the field and I was I didn't have to think about what we had to do because I basically when my friends wanted to run the DC, I was in there in the playbook. I was in in the film room because when I step on the field, I just want to go. Now I can add other stuff cuz I use a mental aspect in the game. I'm going to talk about stuff that I'm going to see if you how strong mentally you are. I don't care what it is. Whatever can make you get off of thinking about football, I tried to do it. So during the offseason, I didn't lift normally with the running backs and the quarterbacks when I was in college. I lift with the linemen and the D-linemen because I felt that pushed me and it also pushed it. I wanted to be as strong as I can possibly be. I wanted to be as fast and in as much shape as I can. And how do I do that? I don't do that by going in and just doing the, the regular stuff. I don't do that by going, Coach said we got 10 100s, by running those 10 100s and just finish under the time they tell us. I want to finish faster and faster and faster. So when I stepped on the football field, nothing concerned me.